ago, the first African Bible College was started right here where you would lick the ice cream in Liberia. And then 20 years ago, the second was started all the way over here, another 4,000 miles away in Malawi. And now we have the third African Bible College in Uganda. So that's three degree-granting universities that are committed to the scriptures as the infallible word of God. And our desire is to raise up Servant Leaders for Christ in Africa. By now we have from the three universities something like 1,200 graduates and they have an impact. You know, we're like coaches. We don't play the game. We push the players out there and they play the game. We have one of our graduates recently that was going back to the Congo, which is one of those disturbing countries in Africa, and there he was going to work with the women because they are pushed down and don't get much opportunity for education in Africa. But when he got there, he ended up ministering to the pygmies in the forest. So he'll get on a motorbike and, you know, they're still hunters and gatherers. He'll get in the forest and find the pygmies. He'll set up his tent and he will teach them the the scriptures that they've never heard before. They're treated as subhuman in, in Africa, the pygmies are. So the government has no interest whatsoever in educating them But just one of our 1,200 students, our graduates, is over there doing something that we couldn't possibly do. But we praise the Lord. You know, this is Africa's hour in so many ways. And we're just privileged to have been a part of that. We were in in Malawi for 22 years, or 12 years, and now in Uganda for 12 years. I have just a pamphlet here that I'll leave with you. So if, if you're interested in reading a little bit more about our curriculum... They not only get a strong core in biblical studies, but they also can take what we would call a minor here in the USA in education, and so they can become school teachers in in, communications with our 24-hour-a-day radio station, Radio ABC 99.3, Teaching the Treasures of God's Truth, or the third area in business. They, we actually have a business program over 30, about 30 hours in addition to the regular curriculum in which our graduates go, can learn the principles of a Christian businessman and have an impact in the world in that way. Well, today we're going to look a little bit at the flow of the Psalms. This is a little book hot off the press. I, I just brought a couple of copies and you know, if you're interested afterwards, you can, you're welcome to, to pick one up at a, at a significantly reduced price. I'm not here to make a lot of money, but to spread the gospel. In the back, you'll find these beautiful charts that Joanna has designed to, to help you see the, the structure of the Psalter and thus guide, uh, gather even more value from the, from the Psalter. Now... How do you read the Psalms? 
There's one, one of my favorite candies that you can't get in Africa, and that's Hershey's Kisses. Now, Hershey's Kisses, you know, is each one is individually wrapped in its own little beautiful silver wrapping, but what's the connection of one Hershey's Kiss to the other? Well, they're next to one another, but they don't kiss one another, do they? Because they're wrapped in each one in its own separate way. Now, is that the way we read the Psalms? St. Augustine, after 600 pages of commentary, he comes to Psalm 150 and he says, the, the arrangement of the book of Psalms is to me a mighty mystery that has not yet been revealed to me. And more recently, Dillard and Longman, you may or may not know that name, they're very you know, prominent evangelical scholars, wrote an introduction on the, New, on the Old Testament and say with respect to the Psalms, you should never try to interpret a psalm in connection with the Psalms to its right or to its left, but each one perhaps in its genre, in, in if it's about kings or if it's about sorrow or whatever, that's the way you interpret. But there's no context. Well, is that the way it is in the book of Psalms? Well, let's look and see if we can see, first of all, if we got this little machine ready to go. Yes, this is just an introductory diagram of the overall structure of the Psalter. Now, if you've read the book of Psalms, you'll notice that there are five books. One, two, three, four, five. Now, it's very interesting that the most of books one and two are by David. And you have a statement at the end of Psalm 72 that says, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended at the end of Psalm 72. Now, anyone have any idea when David lived approximately? 1000 B.C., correct. Now, in this book right here, you will find reports of the devastation of Jerusalem, which occurred in 586 B.C. Psalm 74, Psalm 79, Psalm you know, 89, all describe the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, when did Jerusalem fall? 586 B.C. So you're talking about a 400-year gap between the end of book 2 and book 3. Now, where did these books come from anyway, this division into five books? You know, when I first began teaching, I was known as the I don't know professor because I was the I don't know professor. And I still say, I don't know. No one, as a matter of fact, knows how these how the, the, the whole book of Psalms got divided into five books. But we need to notice that there is a line here that says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, and then you jump four to five hundred years in book three. Now, when you come to book five, well, very interestingly, from 138 to 145, you have eight Psalms of David. What does that mean? If this says the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended, how can you have eight psalms of David right at the penultimate, uh, almost the end of the book of Psalms? What does that mean? Well, it means that somewhere along the line, more than once, almost certainly, there had to be a, an arrangement made, as, 
as St. Augustine says, the arrangement of the Psalms is a mystery that has not been revealed to me, but someone obviously did arrange it. And it looks like he saved eight Psalms of David that he felt were appropriate both in the time of David, because they're by David, but also in the time of the restoration of the nation of Israel after exile, their exile and restoration. This is the exile, and then this is the, the beginning of, well, they're still in exile in book four, and they're beginning to return in book five. In book five, you have the Psalms of Ascents. You have 15 Psalms. Have you noticed that heading of the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascents? What is that? Well, it's ascending to Jerusalem almost certainly, but they couldn't ascend to Jerusalem for the 70 years of their exile. They could ascend to Jerusalem only after they returned in exile. So that's 537 B.C. to 520 B.C. So we we have a progression here. We have a movement in the Psalter. We have a progression in the Psalms. Now, one, the, the book one has 41 psalms, two has 31, three, 17, four, 17, five, 44 psalms. Now, it's very interesting. I am fully convinced that the psalms were so arranged so that the, the shepherd on the hillside of Israel could remember all 150 psalms. They are structured in such a way, both poetically, each one of them, but in the way in which the Psalter is arranged so they could be most easily memorized. Have you ever known anyone that has memorized the whole 150 Psalms? You haven't? Duncan's up there. Certainly you've known someone in Scotland that has memorized the whole of the book of Psalms. Oh yes, I have met them. Oh yes, we only sing the Psalms in church morning and evening During our family devotions, we always sing the psalms. And yeah, I know 150 psalms. It can be done. So I'm past the age, maybe some of you are past the age, but what about your children and your grandchildren? Martin Luther said, I like to think that the Holy Spirit wanted to have a little Bible in which he would, everything that's in the rest of the Bible would be found. And when the Psalter says, he, the righteous, the good, the godly man will meditate on the law of God day and night. How was the, the shepherd boy going to meditate on the law day and night? How many copies of the Bible did he have? How many versions? Hmm? How many? None. Only at the, the priest at the temple. The king was to have his own private copy that he had copied out. But otherwise, no one had access to the Bible The only way they could have it is by memorizing it. Now, we are in a society that is not yet dependent so much on writing. And we just don't realize how effective a memorization can be done by people who are still in an oral society. They say in Africa, when an old man dies, a library dies. Because everything depends on the memory of the past that is brought forward by the older people. We had a case where one of our spiritual emphasis 
speakers came to Malawi. And uh, I'll just put in a little plug here. Do you think you might, since I did kind of urge your current pastor in this direction, that you might urge him to come to Africa sometime soon again and share some of the riches of the Word of God? Well, at any rate, this, this spiritual emphasis speaker came and he said on the first day, I've got a NIV study Bible. And the first person, he's going to be speaking on Romans 8 all week, 39 verses. The first person that comes to me and can recite all 39 verses of Romans chapter 8 will get this international study Bible. Of course, the next morning, this little girl came in and cited the 39 verses of Romans chapter 8 without flaw whatsoever. What about you? You know, I think they did a study in Japan and they have discovered that the fastest computer in the world is the human mind. You can't get any faster than that. And we've gotten so lazy. Now, that's not what I'm here to talk about at this particular point. (laughs) But notice... There are some theme words that indicate something of the progress here. And I urge you to read the Psalms with something of this in your mind. Starts with confrontation. What is this? David is in confrontation with his enemies attempting to establish the kingdom, the messianic kingdom of righteousness and peace. As you begin to read the Psalms, what do you see after books one and two? Enemies, enemies, enemies. Where are all these enemies coming from? What is all this, these enemies about? Well, these are enemies of the kingdom of righteousness and peace that the Messiah is trying to establish in this world. Confrontation. Book two, communication. Communication. It's very interesting. The, there are two major words for God in the Old Testament. One is Come on, there, there must be a student from Greenville Seminary here. The first main, main word for God is Elohim. That's the general name of God. And the other name is Yahweh, the covenant name of God. Six to one, Yahweh, in book one. Six to one, Elohim, in book two. And yet they're all by David. What's going on here? Why do you use Elohim rather than Yahweh? Well, because you're trying to communicate. And you find the difference in the attitude in book one is them and us all together. Lord, bring judgment on them. Lord, give them what they deserve. Lord, destroy them. That's book one. Is that non-Christian? Is that sub-Christian? No, it's not sub-Christian. If you had seen your husband's head chopped off, by ISIS people, you would say, Lord, either convert them or or bring judgment on them. We're looking for righteousness and judgment. Yes, yes, confrontation. But here, all, all you heathen, come to Jerusalem and worship with us. Bring your silver and your gold. Worship the Lord along with us. It's a totally different attitude. Read it and see if that's not what you find in these two books in contrast. Now, book three, what's that? Can anyone read it? Devastation, yes. There are at least four psalms here that describe the devastation of the northern king, uh, no, the, southern, the southern kingdom's capital of Jerusalem 
and the northern kingdom's capital of Samaria, Psalm 80. So it's all thematic. There are some hopeful psalms. There are some two tremendous messianic psalms in this area because God is not going to leave his people without hope even though they deserve his righteous judgment. So devastation is here in Psalm 73 through 89. And 89, how's, how does Psalm 89 end? Lord, you've taken the crown of the king, the messianic king, and you've cast it to the ground. You've taken the throne of the king of Israel and you've cast it to the ground. What are you doing? You're pursuing me, the anointed of the Lord, and you're, you've devastated us. Devastation. And that's the way Psalm 89 ends. Sometimes God's people undergo devastation. It could be a hurricane in South Florida. And it's not discriminating between the righteous and the unrighteous. It can be the devastation of a plague as we experienced. We had to close down our campus in Malawi for a full year. No, in Liberia for a full year because of the the plague that was in that country. Well, Christians as well as non-Christians suffer in that kind of thing. And sometimes a church will split. And there's nothing worse than, than animosity between two groups of people, both confessing Christ and both convinced that they know what the will of God is for that church. I hope you've not gone through that kind of thing. But if, if you do, you'll say, Lord, why is this devastation coming upon us? Well, that's the way book, 80, book 3 ends, and that's Psalm 89. Now, what's the very next word that you hear in this altar? Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. Before the hills were brought forth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now they're in exile. And what do they find? They have no king. They have no priest. They have no temple. They have no sacrifices. They have no land that they can call their own. They're an exile people of God. What have they got? What have they got? They have God the unchanging one. And that's a maturing of faith, is it not? There is a series of Psalms in 90 through 106, actually from 100 or or from 92 to 100, they're called the Yahweh Malach Psalms. Can you say that with me, Yahweh Malach? Yahweh Malach. Now, what did you say? That that sounded like Presbyterians, Yahweh Malach. You know, what this is saying is, The Lord is king. Not that the Lord has just become king. Not just we're hoping that the Lord will become king. Not that the Lord used to be king when we were back in the land. Yahweh Malach. The Lord is king. He's always been king. Even in our exile, he is still his king. He shall forever be king. Yahweh Malach. And there's this whole collection. And is that not a maturing of the faith? As a matter of fact, this very status of the people of God was a preparation for the coming of the Christ. They've been emptied of everything materially, emptied of everything in their worship, emptied of everything as a nation. And what have they got? 
They have God, the unchanging one, the one that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They have the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one whose throne has been united with God's throne. And Psalm 96, in the middle of this collection here, is a psalm of, that is taken right from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, which is describing the bringing up of the ark to Jerusalem, representing the crowning of God, or recognition that God is king alongside Messiah's kingship, David's kingship. That was the perfection of what the Old Testament was looking forward to, that God's kingship would be merged with David's kingship. And Psalm 96, right in the middle of this book, is under is manifesting that faith, that confident faith, that God's people can have at all times. Can you say it with maybe even a little Baptist energy to it? Yahweh Malach, shall we try once more? Yahweh Malach, the Lord is king. Now, after that, what does gold represent? You've got confrontation, a little purple, a little darker purple, communication, devastation in the dark, maturation, that's green, that's life. What's gold? The golden streets, the consummation. And there's a very special word that occurs only at the very end, the last three Psalms of Book 4, And it has two very significant collections in book five. It's a word that you know. It's not exactly a Presbyterian word, but it's an ancient word that goes way back at least 3,000 years. It's a word that people can understand in virtually every language of the world. What is that word? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What is that? That's a shout of triumph of victory. Moses uses the word Yah, which is an abbreviation of Yahweh, just as Israel has triumphed at the Red Sea. When they defeat Amalek, just two chapters later, Exodus chapter 17, he says, a a hand upon the throne of Yah, Yahweh, as Moses says, lifted up his hands interceding for God's people. A A hand upon the throne of Yahweh. But only when you get to the very end of book four and then in two collections of book five, do you ever find this word hallelujah in the Bible? You would have thought that it was in Genesis or in the Pentateuch or in the prophets, but it's not there. Only in the Psalms and only at the consummation of the Psalms. And book five ends with Five hallelujah psalms, beginning and ending with hallelujah. Now, your translations won't show that. It's a little disappointing. Uh, They'll say praise the Lord, but they use that also for the phrase blessed be the Lord. They'll translate praise the Lord, and you can't recognize it very clearly. But hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. And when we get to heaven, you know, how do you say hallelujah in French? You mean you can pronounce this Hebrew word in French and it comes out hallelujah? What about Greek? Hallelujah. What about Swahili, a 
an African language. Hallelujah. So when we all get to heaven, we're just going to stand around saying, Hallelujah, Hallelujah, and everybody will understand what everybody else is saying. And God, it would seem to me, has arranged a special word for us to say, Hallelujah. Now, do you know where Hallelujah occurs in the New Testament? Is it in the Gospels anywhere? The book of Acts? What about Paul's letters? What about the general epistles? Where do you find hallelujah in the New Testament? Only one book, the book of Revelation. And where do you find it? In the letters to the seven churches? No, as all the plagues are being poured out over the nations for their wickedness? Only until chapter 19, after all of God's enemies have been defeated, this very slightly Presbyterian word emerges with a great multitude, with a shouting that everyone can hear. Can we just get ourselves rid of our Presbyterian reticence for just one minute and and say hallelujah the way we're going to say it in heaven? Everyone together now? Hallelujah! Amen. Amen. And that's the end of the book of Psalms. Hallelujah. And it's a wonder if you read those last five books to see all the different reasons that God's people are going to say hallelujah. So that's just an overview of the Psalms. We're supposed to end at quarter till. Is that correct? Okay. Okay, I just thought we would look at one Psalm and see how context can be very significant. How context can be very significant and enrich your understanding of the Psalms. Now, if you should choose one psalm of all others as the most familiar psalm for everyone, what would you choose? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Yes, Psalm 23. Now, what is the context? If we can go to the next slide. Now, that's, ooh, that's too much for us to absorb, right? That's too much to absorb. But let's just look at it just very quickly here. Psalms 1 and 2 are like two great pillars by which we enter into the temple of the Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 are like two great pillars Glorious pillars like the pillars that Solomon had in his temple through which we enter into the wonders of the book of Psalms. And what are the themes of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2? This is the introduction to the Psalter. And Psalm 1 is a... What kind of psalm? I know it's it's maybe a little blurred and it can't be corrected just because of the way it's set up here. I don't... I don't know this kind of stuff very well, but that's a Torah psalm, right? His delight is in the law, the Torah of the law of the Lord, and in his Torah he meditates day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season, in its season. The ungodly are not so but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. 
Now, Torah Psalm begins with the first word is blessed. Blessed is the man that observes the Torah, that loves the Torah. But don't think of law narrowly. The word actually comes from the root yara, which means to teach, to instruct, to guide, instruction, teaching. This is the teaching of the Lord, the loving instruction that he provides for his people. It's talking about the Bible, the Torah of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the teaching of the law. Now, the second is a messianic psalm. And this psalm, if this psalm begins with blessed, what do you think this second basic psalm or introductory psalm is going to end with? I've given you a hint. If this one begins with blessed, how is this one going to end? Blessed. Blessed are all who put their trust in the Messiah. Why do the nations raise against Yahweh and against his Messiah? Have you heard any nation raging lately? I I landed on this shore and I thought, what is this? The creation of God is going to be reformulated by a five to, four, five to four decision of the Supreme Court of this land. We're going to redefine what a human being is in terms of male and female. How crazy. Just totally insane. Is it not? They rage against Yahweh and his Messiah. And they're going to cast off their bonds and we're going to be totally free and self-defining as human beings. It is just absolutely insane to deny the order of the creation and they think they're really going to do that the wicked are not so they're like the chaff which the wind drives away and they will be cursed and cast out from the land but blessed are all who put their trust in him so what have you got is the two introductory psalms law and gospel gospel and law. You can't have law without gospel or you become like a Muslim, a legalist. You can't have gospel without law or you become a libertine. I was sinking deep in sin. Wee, this is fun. I can do whatever I want to. No, you've got to have law and gospel. Now look right under here, Psalm 18 and Psalm 19. And what have you got? Messianic Psalm, Torah Psalm. See the coupling here for the introductory psalm, Torah psalm, Messianic psalm, 18 and 19, Messianic psalm, Torah psalm. Now, my wife is a mathematician and I'm not, but if you've got 41 psalms, this is only half of book one, if you've got 41 psalms in book one, where is the middle point? Well, 20, 20 and a half, something like that. This is not exact, but it's very close to being exact. Exactly dividing book one. Why is that? For easier memorization. So you know you've got Torah Psalm, Messianic Psalm, and halfway through. So you're dividing this part right here from 3 through 17, from 20 through 25. And then you have another divider subsequently. Or we could see some more divisions here. But this is essentially cutting right in the middle this Second largest, 41 Psalms of book one. Now, when you come to the largest book, and we won't look at this just for a times person, you'll find 
118 and 119 Messianic Psalm, Torah Psalm. 1 and 2, 18 and 19, 118 and 119. And that's the biggest book that's being divided in its two major sections at, in book 5 of those 44 Psalms. Now, very interestingly, if you go from 3 through 17, you will not find messianic terminology. You will find references to the Messiah, like Psalm 16, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. But there's not a word about the King, the messianic King. There's not a word about the Son of the King. There's not a word about the messianic kingdom from 3 through 17. But after Messianic Psalm 18 has introduced the subject, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, all talk about kingship. Two Psalms talking about Messiah's kingship, two Psalms talking about Yahweh's kingship, and in the middle, you know what Psalm 22, how how it reads, don't you? How does Psalm 22 begin? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is that? That's the suffering Messiah of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we get so overwhelmed by the prophecies of the suffering of Christ in Psalm 22 that we don't read to the end. How does Psalm 22 end? Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh And all the families of nations will bow down before him for dominion belongs to Yahweh and he rules over the nations. What is this? Psalm 22 combines the kingships, messianic kingship and the Lord's kingship. So you've got five kingship psalms right after Psalm 18. 20 and 21, Messiah's kingship. 23 and 24, you know Psalm 24. Open up your gates and the king of glory will come in. Who is he, this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts, he is the king, the king of glory. Five times over in the last few verses, a reference to Yahweh as the king of glory coming in in Psalm 24. So, what have we got? 20 through 24 five kingship psalms immediately after messianic psalm 18. Now, Torah psalm 19. Tell me what the law does for you. One, they're both positive, but we can think of one as positive and one as negative. What does the law do? What does God's law do for you? I'm here to learn from you. Tell me what the law does. Okay, it reveals to us our sin. It makes sin plain to us, but it's also instructing us so we will not sin against the Lord. So it's two things that the law does. One, it instructs and teaches, right? That's what the Bible does. This is not law in the narrow sense, but instruction. But in the broader sense, it instructs and teaches. The second thing it does is convicts of sin. Now, from 3 through 17, this word for instruction is not found one time. But Psalm 25 
immediately after we get through the five kingship psalms, in response to teaching Psalm 19, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, Psalm 25 says, teach me, lead me, guide me, instruct me. Isn't that interesting? And as far as confession of sin, there's no confession of sin from 3 through 17. No confession of sin. But when you get to Psalm 25, it begins by saying, Lord, please don't remember the sins of my youth. Have you ever prayed that prayer? I have, Lord. Please, could, could you please forget the sins of my youth? Don't hold them against me, the sins of my youth. Anyone have that prayer? But then three other times, four times in Psalm 25 is confession of sin. So you see the magnificent beauty of the book of Psalms, the structure that is here. So in in this little bit of time, we've just looked at half of book one and out of these 25 Psalms, how many do you now know? Well, you know Psalms 1 and 2, you know Psalms 18 and 19, you know Psalms 20 through 24, you know Psalms 25, and I could very quickly point out that right before there's something called an acrostic psalm, and uh, we can't look at that, but immediately before acrostic psalms or creation psalms, four acrostic psalms in book 1, four acrostic psalms in book 5, and before each one of the acrostic psalms in book 1, Three creation psalm, creation psalm, creation or acrostic psalm. Just another portion of the structure. Now, just one word about Psalm 23 now. In context. When you hear these words, the Lord is my shepherd. You rejoice and we all rejoice in the tenderness, the gentleness of the Lord who is our shepherd who cares for us as a shepherd cares for his sheep. But in the context, what do we learn about this shepherd? He is the king. He is the king of glory. And would it not encourage us even more to realize that this tender, gentle shepherd is also the king of the nations, that all nations bow before him, that he is sovereign over all the nations of the world. And suddenly Psalm 23 could mean a lot more to us. And just one other little item, Psalm 23 says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. Now, maybe you can instruct me on this. I've been searching Google on this and I can't quite get the answer I'm looking for. You know, sometimes a preacher is looking for a certain answer. Why do sheep lie down? And the only thing I can get from Google is they lie down for a lot of reasons. One thing they will not do, they will not lie down if a storm is coming or they, they are terrified, they, they're standing up. But sometimes they will lie down, at least cows I have learned from Google, chew their cud when they lie down. But I think when it says, they, he makes me to lie down in green pastures, not one green pasture, but multiple green pastures. No fences here. It's not greener on the other side of the fence. And the sheep has got access to all these green pastures, and then he lies down. Couldn't it be because he's just satiated? 
He's eaten all he can eat, and so he lies down. And you go back to Psalm 22, at the end of Psalm 22, and you have this interesting thing. Verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. And again, verse 29, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. Both the poor and the rich who are shepherded by the Lord will be satisfied. Does that enrich Psalm 23 just a little bit? And that's just a touch of what we could see if we begin to read the Psalms in context to see that this is a magnificent construction of the Holy Spirit of God. As Martin Luther says, I think the Lord wanted to have a little Bible in which everything is to be found. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for your word that is settled in the heavens, that is sure and steadfast. Forgive us when our problem is not your provision, but our doubting of your provision. Forgive us when we fidget and fuss and fume and forget that you are the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth and you will never relinquish that lordship. Help us also to trust you even when we don't seem to have enough, knowing that even when the Lord denies us bread, it is for our good and his glory. Continue to bless this church and its pastors. We pray you, O gracious Father, that the testimony that has been there all through the years of the existence of the PCA and continuing into the future may give glory to your name, to the Lord of lords and King of kings, in whose name we pray. Amen.